want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's a cunning plan, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, still hearts keep Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kolsick and I'm joined as ever by Sean Coletti. Sean, how's it going? It's going okay. It was a long, long weekend. Well, it was a it was a birthday weekend for you because, of course, you had your birthday party this this last Saturday. Also, of course, you came down to Comic Con. Thank you so much for making the lengthy drive. Absolutely, yeah, definitely worth it. San Diego is a great place, and it was nice to see it filled with so many nerds. <laughs> yep, well, that is how we roll, and it was certainly a good time. It was wonderful to actually, for those who are listening, this was the first time I had actually met Sean in person, so it was it was really great to have you come down for that. Um, there, I'm, I'm just going to skip through the, the listener feedback this week because most of it is all... Uh, Comic-Con stuff, and we're going to talk Comic-Con later in the podcast. My sister's coming back on, and we're going to uh, sort of wrap up what the experience was. Uh, only things I wanted to mention was, uh, first of all, you heard from Eat the Rudecast, and I still haven't been able to check you guys out, but I will soon. Um, and I'm glad there's another Hannibal podcast out there making things interesting. And Andy, I am so sorry I missed you in the Barm 20 line. Next year, man. Next year. Sean, any, any uh, listener feedback for you? Um, we've been talking a little bit of Utopia, like we mentioned last week, but uh, we'll definitely get to that at some point towards the end of the summer. Yeah, that is on the list in a big way for me. Coming later in the podcast, we're going to talk Comic-Con, and uh, we got a couple different segments coming for you. First of all, I was fortunate enough to get to interview Brian Reitzel, who does the music for Hannibal, first uh, with some other press at Comic-Con, and then he was generous enough uh, to, to wait after so that I could speak with him further. So we have uh, a wonderful segment with him coming later in the show and then my sister will be back to break down uh, our Comic-Con experience and kind of talk about all the different things we saw and uh, pros and cons and all that good stuff. So that'll be coming at the end of the podcast. I really enjoyed getting to talk Hannibal uh, super in-depth with with Brian Reitzel and so hopefully you guys will enjoy that as well. But uh, all that'll be coming at the end of the podcast and uh, we should really kick things off because we've got a lot to talk about. So let's take a break and come back with our week in comedy and reality. Catch up with me I'm so 
This week in reality and comedy, we're going to talk a little rising star and so you think you can dance, and then uh, look go over to the comedies with Wilfred Married, You're the Worst, and Adventure Time. But first, rising star, Sean, check us back in. How's it going? The duels are now over, so I think there were, oh man, maybe like 10 of them. Whatever the case, like 13 people have advanced to the next round, and five of those 13 are going to be eliminated all next week. I think it's the format, actually, uh, that's really disorganized and that hasn't really been doing the show any credit on top of the lack of talent. Uh, but some of the people who just didn't impress me at all in the first round had much better second songs. Uh, and yet, I would still say it's it's not really like got that oomph. So uh, we'll see what the next round looks like. The duels were semi-interesting just to see... Um, the West Coast and the East Coast bars be going up at the same time and seeing who would be safe. But, uh, yeah, no, again, the only reason to be watching this right now is kind of the banter between the, the judges and Josh Groban. Well, that can make or break a show, certainly a reality competition show, the judging. So at least that's something, question mark? At least that's something, dot, 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 question mark. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to So You Think You Can Dance. Uh, what are the numbers that stu- stood out to you this week? Oh, man. Uh, it's got to be Emilio and Bridget's contemporary routine. As soon as they announced the people who were in danger, I, I like Tanisha. I didn't want to see her go, uh, and so I-, I was glad that she wasn't. I wouldn't have been super upset, but with Bridget, there's a lot of potential there, and I, I certainly didn't. And as soon as they uh, told us that it was going to be a contemporary thing, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief because I knew that she was going to knock that out of the park, and they did, and that was such a good routine I thought and it was my favorite of the night and I really think that those two are my favorite pair and maybe individual dancers as well on the show right now. The pairing makes such a big difference on this show if there's a couple that key into each other and that develop a rapport right away they're almost impossible to stop just because the the two buoy each other and uh, that's certainly happening with those two right now I thought the routine was fantastic like you said there were not there are a number of them that I really enjoyed but the thing I have to really point out is the mini group numbers at the end those were fantastic yeah it seemed like maybe uh, the judges praised the second one a little bit more I thought that the first one uh, the Bjork one was really really fantastic but yeah you're right both of them were very, very good. And Tanisha's uh, like solo part in that first one was especially, um, I guess, noteworthy. Now you're getting to know the dancers. Have you yet gotten to know the choreographers? I could tell um, who's who's the really great woman who did that first, that Bjork one. Well, that's Sonia Taya. Yeah, I, I can kind of tell what she goes for in terms of the stories that she tells. Um, the other ones, I haven't really noticed much of the patterns, but uh, they've already used like quite a few people, so I'm, I'm sure over the next few weeks I'll probably recognize a couple other ones. I would imagine. Um, I do have to mention Emily and Teddy's rather unfortunate salsa. I'm sure they'll both be in the uh, in the bottom for that because it just it wasn't very good, but uh, hopefully they'll be able to have a strong showing next week to keep them in contention, and I just have to mention that, that Bend Backwards by Carly at the end of her routine, which was just so powerful such an amazing move and the execution by her but also just the choreography of that was fantastic yeah and this whole season i've been thinking i've been looking at carly and i've been like what you know she looks familiar and it turns out 
in a click this week that she looks and sounds and has the exact same body language when she's speaking uh, as one of my friends. So that's incredibly scary. <laughs> that's fun. Now, does that mean you're rooting for for her extra or is it just too disconcerting? Uh, I think I'm rooting for her extra for that, yeah. Well, any final thoughts on So You Think You Should Dance or shall we move on to the comedies? Uh, let's move on. Well, and uh, first up this week, we have Wilfred. Unfortunately, with Comic-Con, I was not able to catch up with everything, and the first victim of that this week was uh, was Wilfred. So what did you think of this week's episode? Well, they brought back Bruce, who is the guy who plays a bunch of games with Wilfred uh, at the expense of uh, Ryan's sanity. And it was good to see him back. They've they brought in several, I think, of the recurring characters who have been a part of this series at one point or another. We saw Amanda recently as well. Uh, not really much development going on in this episode, but it might have been one of the funnier ones of the season so far. So uh, I would definitely give it points for that alone. More, I, I guess, little developments in terms of the, the father's story, so he's investigating uh, where exactly all of this money is coming from in terms of the recurring payments and uh, and Wilfred's might actually be Matdaman, the benevolent god rather than Krungle who uh, it was supposed that Bruce might represent. Ah, more intrigue. I, I don't care about that part of it, but I'm encouraged <laughs> by you saying it's funnier, so that that's good. Um, let's move on to Married, the shower. Uh, what did you think? This was great in terms of establishing the, I guess, supporting characters more so. So definitely everything going on um, with Brett Gelman's character, but also seeing uh, the two female characters pair off and have a good drunken night as well. Like uh, all The shenanigans in both sequences I thought were really entertaining uh, and kind of drew out good and interesting qualities in our, our two main married characters so yeah this one definitely worked better than the pilot for me i and i like that uh sort of awkward place that the two women are in you know when when uh, judy Greer's character is like well you're not we're not really friends but you're friends with my husband but it's like something like you're not friend you know i thought that that was explored well and briefly they didn't you know dive too deep into it but they they expressed that which i thought was nice and yeah brett gelman is just so much fun even in a really less than fun role uh so so yeah this one worked for me how about you're the worst insouciance uh this one again probably even better than the pilot which i was more keen on than mary's um just to see the characters try and figure out what this is because we can kind of tell that they definitely are attracted to each other more so than just sexually but because of who they are um, there's definitely a, a defensiveness there a wall being put up being put up and it kind of cracks just a little bit and again like with Mary the supporting cast it, it was fantastic to see his roommate um, talk with the kids at the bus stop and I mean he's not like the most deep intelligent intellectual guy but he knows how to like handle these situations well so for instance that on top of uh, going to, to see her at work and say look you know he wants to go get 
dinner later and he's setting this up all on his own. So, yeah, because the pilot definitely was focused almost entirely on those two main characters, but it, it looks like writers have a sense of what they want to do with people who are outside of that. Yeah, I like that roommate character quite a bit. And um, after the the pilot is so focused on their sexual relationship, I like that they immediately branch out and look at another element of it. And so I thought that worked. And, you know, I just had fun with it as well. Um, It's been a couple weeks since I watched it, so I don't have much more to add than than that. And though, of course, next week we'll be right back to new episodes for me. Uh, Any final thoughts on You're the Worst or shall we move on to Adventure Time? Let's go Adventure Time. Well, Adventure Time, thanks for the crab apples. Giuseppe uh, is another one of these larks that, you know, takes Jake and Finn mostly out of the equation. What did you think? Uh, well, everything that had to do with the character Giuseppe was was rather beautiful and strikingly so. Um, I've been getting to notice that Adventure Time, whether intentionally or not, draws on a lot of classic literary tropes um and in this case kind of like the folk tale so this might have been you know the kind of story that maybe would have appeared in one of uh Chaucer's Canterbury Tales characters stories you know that could easily be one of the 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 ones that was never finished or something this was had a really kind of um parabolic is that I guess was the right word quality to it so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. I really like the switch in animation style when we get his, uh, the you know what he's written. I, I like the way the show plays with animation, and that's just one element of it, or one example of it, I should say. And yeah, I thought I just thought it was fun. I like spending time with these other characters that we so rarely see, like Abracadaniel and, and you know and such. So uh, yeah, I had fun with it. I you know when we have the switching of heads with tree trunks and then we cut over to the pig i thought that was pretty great too um any final thoughts um no i mean the last the funny moment for me was the the farmer running out with the shotgun or whatever and he has to ask if they're still there because he can't see anything (laughs) yeah that was pretty fun well what wins your week in comedy and reality uh i'm gonna give it to so you think you can dance which i'm finding myself more and more into Excellent, and I'll give it to uh, I'll give it to Married because it's just I had to remind myself a little bit of what happened on So You Think You Can Dance. It's all a blur. This is what happens when you watch So You Think You Can Dance in the middle of a crazy Comic Con. But we'll get to that later. Uh, for now, let's take a break and come back with our week in genre.
This week in genre, we have True Blood, Karma, Extant, Wish You Were Here, and then The Strain, Gone Smooth. Once again, I have not seen True Blood, and this week I wasn't able to get to Extant either. Uh, Sean, take it away. What did you think of True Blood? Is it three for three? Uh, not quite, but this one wasn't as poor, I think, as the first few episodes that opened up the season. So coming off of two good episodes, this one was a bit of a step down, but still fine. And what this was, I think, was mostly table setting for what's happening with the vampires who have developed Happy. And something's going on with, with Bill because his is accelerating to a massive degree. And I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that he has contracted it from Sookie, who gets tested and is now a carrier. Um, and it must have to do with the fact that she's a fairy or whatever. So all kinds of complications that may or may not be uh, revealed. But what was revealed that's rather interesting, because I, I enjoyed the decision to bring back Anna Camp if just to have her be killed by by Eric, but um, but now she's actually more than that and has some plot potential because uh, at the very end, before her true blood uh, factory was shut down, she drank what was the antidote for Hep V, and so it's coursing through her blood, and we see that she heals her sister, so Eric's going to have a tough time deciding whether to just demolish her or to use her for the benefit of the vampires. Oh, we know what's going to happen there. Come on. <laughs> I mean, you figure, because this is the last season, and like many people are probably going to die, because that's kind of those are the last cards that True Blood can pull. Like, this isn't going to end happily ever after. Yep. Well, you'll have to keep us informed as to which way Eric goes. Even if we think we know, let us know <laughs> which way we think he's going to go. What about Extant? Wish you were here. Uh, well, I had missed last week, so I caught up on that episode and this week's episode. What I appreciated most is that we get more of the space story for, I mean, I forget the guy's name, but the other one who had gone up and who was deemed insane and so who people think is dead because he killed himself. It's just, it's a good balance, I guess, of the several moving parts. I'm less keen on the whole alien aspect of it, and I know that has to be a part of it um, because that's what explains what happened to our main character when she was up there, but, uh, you know, the family stuff is working, so I feel like that could probably carry the series for right now. Is that kind of the impression that you got? Are you interested in those other supernatural-ish things? I'm much more interested in the family than I am in the various mysteries of the show. But just like you said, last you know, last week I was complimenting the show for further exploring the other uh, astronaut and his, his journey. So uh, I'm encouraged that there's more of that coming yet in Episode 3 and uh, hopefully this week in Episode 4 as well. But yeah, and I think they're doing a good job of not overemphasizing, at least in the two episodes I've seen so far, overemphasizing the mystery and the, the aliens and all of that and just letting it feel more human. Yeah, and I think maybe that was the issue with this third episode was because that was a bigger part. But then they have more stuff like um, the husband's assistant, the, the girl who was in the last season of the newsroom, kind of trying to be the mother figure for the kids. Um, nudge out Halle Berry's character and and that's fine I think that that 
is creating an inter another interesting dynamic in the family story. So I'm on board there, at least for the moment. I'm nervous about that because that's something you could see coming a mile away, and I really am not interested in that. So uh, now I'm more leery. So I'm just you keep tossing me back and forth with this, Sean. We'll have to <laughs> I'll have to catch up and keep y'all informed next week. But let's move on to the strain gone smooth. The opening number, I think it was the opening number where we see one of the, the vampires put on all of his makeup. That was like almost straight out of Hannibal in terms of the composition and the scoring. And I thought that that was rather a good nod, whether intentional or not. Um, but yeah, the, there's not a whole lot of beauty to this series. It's mostly um, deriving from the grotesque. So to get something like that, I thought was a nice change of pace, even if the rest of the episode didn't really have uh, any moments like that, but it's good to see David Bradley out of jail and to have one of the other characters at least lending him an ear. Again, I think that he can kind of carry a different version of this show, but uh, as long as we spend some time with him, I think that that's worthwhile. Yeah, I absolutely agree about that opening sequence. It was very well done, and uh, it's good to see the the vampires looking monstrous, and that the reason that they haven't so far is through a dedicated makeup regimen every day so that that's you know that's encouraging and yeah david bradley really is the secret weapon of this show or not so secret at this point everybody loves david bradley um and so i look forward to what is coming with that character and i what i assume will be an increased role for him in the in the back half of the season um so yes that's about all i have to add to the for the strain i, I just i don't care about the the custody thing. I just, I, I know it's not going to end up mattering, so I don't really care. Am I yeah, a bad person? No, and I would add that I don't really care about uh, Sean Aston's character being torn between these two different loyalties for the sake of a very predictable cancer arc. So that was something that I could do without. Um, although okay. he was, it was good to have all three of those people in that fight scene at the end there which was shot rather well and was appropriately creepy as Corey Stoll's just beating the head in with the fire extinguisher. So yeah. they've, they've not skimped on the action, I would say. Well, what wins your week in, in genre? I mean, I've only seen one, so it's the strain by default, but which wins for you? I want to give it to Extant for broken my interest a little bit more than the pilot did over these last two episodes. Fair enough. Well, now we'll take a break and come back with our week in drama.
This week in drama, we're going to talk The Bridge, Sorrowsworn, then The Leftovers, Gladys, and then uh, we'll both chime in a little bit with the Manhattan pilot, You Always Hurt the One You Love, Rectify, Mazel Tov, and Masters of Sex, Fight. Um, again, another victim of Comic-Con for me. I ha was not able to watch either The Bridge or The Leftovers. Um, so, Sean, first The Bridge, Sorrowsworn, how has this third episode held up to the first two? You know, I guess now we're kind of back to the status quo of the first season. So Marcos uh, back in El Paso and most of the other characters who had big parts. So we get both um, Thomas M. Wright and Annabeth Gish's characters. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it hasn't made a jump yet between the first season and the second season in the way that I was really hoping that it would. I thought that the first season was very solid with potential, uh, if also some glaring flaws. And I think I could have said the exact same thing about Masters of Sex, and we'll talk about Masters of Sex later, of course. And that has made a bigger jump, and this one has kind of just remained the same. So there's still really, really good acting and just absolutely beautiful shooting. I think just in terms of the production values, this is still one of the best shows on TV right now. Um, but there are so many different stories being told right now. And to add on now with um, Annabeth Gish's and the the boyfriend, the guy from Cougar Town whose name I can't remember. Um, Brian Van Holt? Brian Van Holt, yes. And, and he's wonderful because he's funny and very charismatic, but nothing's really happening there yet. So they're, they're obviously playing the 13-episode game, which makes some of these early episodes um, not really that energetic. Hmm. I don't like either of those two characters. <laughs> so, but hopefully I will like how they're used. Um, and certainly I know I will look forward to spending time with a couple of the other characters as I catch up this week. But let's move on to The Leftovers, Gladys. And is it more of the same? Uh, I was really rolling my eyes at the very beginning of this episode, um, which has a very shocking scene of violence and again that when you asked is it more of the same to me that felt like yeah and then also pushing it overboard in terms of kind of what they're doing by bringing the emotions of the audience down very far but after that uh it did get better and actually this i guess it couldn't be classified as the most focused episode based on the fact that we got the, the christopher eccleson one but this one doesn't go to the sun and Christine. It, it stays with the central core and the guilty remnant and what's going on with them. So I think that it benefited a lot from that. And I was kind of surprised by uh, a couple ways in which they were able to get really good characterization out of some of the members of the guilty remnant. So I, I'm not going to spoil anything for you because I think that this one might be one of the stronger ones that we've seen so far. And yet, Again, with this, it hasn't really made that jump yet to where I'm really excited every Sunday night to, to sit down and watch The Leftovers. Yeah. It's always, you know, there's that difference between it's interesting or it's it's worth watching and I want to watch it or I recommend it. And that's sort of where Leftovers is stuck for me right now. Uh, let's move on to the pilot for Manhattan. I talked about this last week, but you were able to kind of catch up with it. Uh, what did you think of what you saw of Manhattan? Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised, you know, after seeing a really uh, crappy first new series ever, 
uh, in Salem, we get another channel, WGN America, and they've produced something that is, at the very least, an interesting concept for a show, um, but also for a first-time original series is much better produced than it needs to be and has, at least in this pilot, I think, a good handful of core actors. Um, the only one I was familiar with or that, that I could remember was Rachel, whose last name I'm not going to be able to pronounce, from House of Cards, who was very good in this most rec recent season of House of Cards but didn't really get enough to work with. And so to see her in a bigger role in this um, is probably a good test of her capabilities. But yeah, like I said, um, the story, I think, at least is going to draw me in. And this is kind of a period piece that I don't think I've seen done really in terms of what it's focus on, focusing on with regards to World War II. So, um, yeah, pleasantly surprised. Well, I mean, this cast, you have uh, you have John Benjamin Hickey, who people will know. He's been in The Good Wife several times. He's Neil Gross in The Good Wife. Uh, he was a, a regular on The Big C. Um, and then, of course, he also just got a Tony in the past couple of years. There's Daniel Stern, of course, who people of my generation will know as one of the sticky bandits from Home Alone, but uh, everybody else will know as, you know, the, oh the Wonder God. Years. I didn't even put that together. The news, yeah. Yep, and Olivia Williams, who I mentioned last time. Uh, and, I mean, the whole cast is full of people like that. So there's, I like I said last week, I was very surprised and impressed with the caliber of cast that they put together for this show, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I'm kind of looking forward to this one, checking out the next episode. Yeah, I mean, there's been plenty of new series that have aired this summer, and none of them have been um, really noteworthy other than The Leftovers, and I feel like this is one that we could probably talk about week to week, because it seems like there's a lot of stuff there, so I'm looking forward to it as well. The the big two heavy hitters, though, remain very much Rectify and Masters of Sex. Uh, Rectify this week is Mazel Tov, and we get, uh, we get Daniel's mother's birthday. Uh, how did this episode sit with you? Yeah. This is just a crappy show. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> all all the conversations with Charlie Chapman weren't interesting. John telling the Pauly citizen, uh, go do that somewhere else. That wasn't very fun. This was a really good episode. No surprise. Yeah, I, I love that Charlie Chaplin thing. Such a fun little touch. Um, yeah, I mean, everything for me with, uh, with Tawny this week was really great. Uh, I really enjoyed that you know that conversation we had with Tawny and Teddy Jr. as well as you know later with Daniel and then the reveal of the pregnancy. I really liked. Um, you know I thought Amantha and oh, I can't remember his name were super adorable at the roller skating rink. Yeah, I John. I continue to be concerned about Leslie with a Z as much as I love that actor. Yeah, um, yeah it's just another really good episode. It's great to see Ted Senior step up and. Uh, and and get back in everyone's good graces in this yeah, week. Yeah, to kind of diffuse that, that awkward Stowe situation, because um, he would probably be the well, I guess next to Teddy Jr. the the most surprising person to be able to do that. But yeah, because this is the, really the first confrontation. It's not really a confrontation, but uh, a meeting between Daniel and Tawny that we've seen since that got a little awkward. And the first part of it was that as well. But then almost immediately after that they get back to being able to talk in a way that you could tell that these two characters 
um, are meant to be together, not necessarily romantically, but because they have things to offer one another. Uh, and it was great to see that highlighted and then to see Teddy Jr. see that and totally reverse the whole thing by announcing the pregnancy and trying to make Daniel feel bad, which, hey, that's a Teddy Jr. move, isn't it? That is so a Teddy Jr. move. I also like the way the episode ends with Daniel. I don't like him doing more drugs, but I like him contemplating the victim of the crime that you know he was imprisoned for because we haven't seen any of that. And so to see him... You know, to 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 have that character or, or his uh, searching for her in some way come up here, I thought made sense. And because um, he wasn't really in a position to process or think about that previously, because um, there was just you know the condensed timeline of these two seasons. But to have that weighing on him and have her weighing on him, especially now that he's out, uh, makes sense. And so I look forward to what may come next. Even as much as I don't really want to know, I'm I'm glad that he's thinking about it. Yeah, I could again do without some of the stuff going on with the senator, which isn't really that interesting. But the the showdown at the gas station between Daniel and the other guy who we've been following, who who murdered the witness by the creek. Um, at the very least, that was kind of framed rather beautifully. Uh, and so even though I'm, I'm not necessarily excited about where they're going with that character, it, it was good to see Daniel interact with him and to bring those two pieces, which have been hitherto removed from one another together in a scene. Yep. Well, but for me, though, this week in TV is all about Masters of Sex. And so let's move on to that one. Uh, the episode's Fight. It's one that I've been hearing about for almost months now, at least two or three weeks as as screeners went out to various people. Um, and it lived up to the hype. This was a fantastic episode of television. This immediately sets the bar for every subsequent episode of this series. It is definitely the best one that they've done so far. I will be utterly shocked if this does not make our year-end best of the latter half of 2014 for Sound on Sight. They're everything about this. And I guess fans, or not fans, pe people who have criticized Mad Men in the past of being too heavy on the metaphor and parallels might also find some issues with some of the ways that they're rather forcibly comparing um, ideas of, of love and sex to... Uh, sports and fighting and boxing in this case, but those people can shut up because this was awesome. <laughs> well, the exploration of femininity, masculinity, what is a man, what is a boy, uh, I mean, the all it, it pervades the episode. I love that you can see Virginia's frustration with her daughter at the princess fairy tales that she so wholeheartedly embraces. But Virginia doesn't then lecture her daughter and, and tell her a story of a brave princess. She doesn't need a prince because that, that that's not what the daughter wants to hear. And it would have been completely contrived for her to force that conversation. Instead, she tries to nudge her daughter or, or uh, you know, tries to influence her 
in that way, but she's not, you know, she's not basically turning to camera and making the daughter's bedtime story all about what she just experienced. And, you know, the that subtlety I really appreciated. Yeah, and to draw a comparison, I feel like there were some echoes of Elizabeth and Paige Jennings' relationship in that as well, where Elizabeth is coming from a perspective of having more information, more uh, life experience, and yet can't really come to grips with what her daughter is saying. And so I feel like both of the daughters in these cases have certain things to teach the mothers and that the writers are very aware of that and are pointing that out. Yeah, the the back and forth of storytelling and role play and honesty throughout that hotel sequence, which really this episode is all about that hotel, hotel sequence, was just lovely. The, the Watching the body language as they listen was fascinating. I was just glued to my TV watching this. Yeah, and so much so that you might have lost something in terms of the the final thematic punch towards the end, but you could have kind of picked up that baby story and moved it somewhere else, and you could have just had a bottle episode with Virginia and Bill in a hotel, and it would have worked just as well, I, I would think. Um, but yeah, Michael Sheen is just so damn good at expressing the faintest hint of emotion when Bill is just starting to feel it and is trying to repress it. And so all of these little attempts that Virginia makes to draw out the story about his father and what was going on there, you can see that he kind of gets a little closer and closer as the episode progresses to divulging more honest and useful information. And by the end of it, he's so vulnerable. They both are incredibly vulnerable. And, you know, these are two people who have been having sex uh, a couple times already in this episode. And then when Bill wants to just look at her naked, she's at first really shy about it because of that vulnerability, because they've really put each other out um, for the other to really see. Yeah, yeah, they're not comfortable. And notice he never offers to take off his bathrobe and be as vulnerable as he's asking her to be. Um, yeah, it's it's just a very layered and uh, emotional and th- thoughtful scene. And um, yeah, it was wonderful to watch. The last thing I'll mention, because I had to look it up because I was rather curious, um, the fights, the actual fight between Archie Moore and oh, Yvonne something, I can't remember, but uh, the the one who Bill was supporting, who was the old dog, uh, did end up winning that fight after looking like it wasn't going to go down that way, being knocked down several times. So uh, it was good to see Bill metaphorically get that win, even though he doesn't get the win with the father of the, the baby that he's trying to protect. Yeah, that's uh, I, that made me very happy to hear that. So uh, they clearly they did their job, the writers over at Masters of Sex. Well, uh, then Sean, she asked, knowing the answer, what wins your week in drama? I mean, yeah, it's not even close. And again, this this is the highlight of the summer, and I'll be damned if something is this good come the end of the year in terms of from from July until then. Yeah, this year, the two standout episodes of television for me 
uh, single episodes as opposed to seasons are the Hannibal season two finale and this Masters of Sex fight. So it was truly remarkable television. And I, I hope we get more episodes as good. I don't expect it, but I would love to have several more of these in the last half of the year. Well, a few show notes before we go to our Comic-Con talk. You can find a post up at soundofsight.org for this episode where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can email us at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook to follow the goings-on at Sound of Sight TV. We are in iTunes with an M4A chaptered feed and an MP3 unchaptered feed. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I am at the Televerse, and Sean, you are? At Sean Coletti. And where else can we find you online, Sean? You can find some of my past written reviews over at tvovermind.com, otherwise at soundonsite.org. And you can find some of my writing over at the AV Club, as well as, of course, soundonsite.org. Uh, Sean, what is our question of the week? Question of the week. So as I've been coming, becoming more and more into So You're Thinking a Dance, and they did these little moments where they're like, hey, you can learn this step. I've not quite like stood up and tried to do this dance step. I'm not at that level yet although it's certainly a possibility, but uh, has watching a TV show ever, like, created a new hobby for you, or has it, like, actively changed your life in some way? Huh, I'm going to have to think about that, because nothing's coming to mind. I think that watching Hannibal has, like, really changed some of my attitudes towards, um, I guess high culture i'm not sure I, I find myself like paying more attention to what i eat and what i wear and how i interact in certain situations because i want to be like hannibal lecter <laughs> minus the killing yeah and the eating people hopefully um yeah i get the only thing that comes to mind right now is um well being more aware of dance because so you think you can dance and you know like shows like Good Eats that I love and watched religiously for quite uh, a few years that made me a better cook. But, you know, outside of shows that are intended to make you more thoughtful about your cooking or your home design or whatever, nothing is really coming to mind. So I'll have to think on that and get back to you guys next week. But let us know what uh, what your answer is to the question of the week. That's wonderful. Now we're going to take a break and First, we're going to come back with my interview with Brian Reitzel, the composer of Hannibal, and uh, we have a nice long chat with him that you guys will hear, and then we'll come back with my sister uh, to talk about Comic-Con as a whole. There's just We're going to have a couple weeks here of just Comic-Con content on the podcast because I was fortunate enough to get quite a bit of it, and uh, so we're going to dull it out a little bit at a time. But first up, Brian Reitzel talking with myself, and in the first half, some other... Uh, some other press at Comic-Con, then the second half just myself, about the scoring on Hannibal.
I'm a super fan of and I love uh -oh. your score. Oh, great. I promise not to be like we'll, we'll let her talk. Yeah. Talking. Um, <laughs> so the, I had a couple things I want to specifically ask you about. First of all, the score for particularly the finale was gorgeous, and, and, and um, I was wondering if you talk briefly about it. the. Of course, you you had the the aria from the Goldberg variations that you adapted for that, um, but also I I really enjoyed in the score the the use of I think it was like woodblock to be the clock throughout and the way that you um, there was the the winding of the clock at certain times I was wondering what how much of that is the score and how much of that is sound effects like how does that it's come all together? Me. So it's it was all me. wonderful there's almost no sound effects in Hannibal uh-huh I mean there's gunshots there's doors opening mm -hmm. um, and not only that but the director David Slade who brought me in kind of supervises the mixes where he takes background sounds out so that the music has more of a presence whether it's dogs barking. It's incredible how effective putting birds. Yeah. You think you're outside, you gotta have wind and birds. You take that out and it makes it so much yeah. more interesting. You know, mm -hmm. birds lighten everything. Um, the last episode of the channel starts with something that we saw in the first thing, yeah. right? With completely different scoring though, changing the context of it. Yeah, well, but I knew that the audience once we got to that episode, once that started, they knew that we were going to catch up, mm -hmm. right? So when Hannibal Lecter writes the invitation to Jack Crawford, mm -hmm. we know there's going to be a fight. I literally use my kitchen timer. Mm -hmm. I used to be a chef. I, I have good cooking things. It's a great yeah. timer. I broke the timer somehow, <laughs> winding it up. Yeah. I had to get another one. Luckily, they're not expensive. So I thought it'd be really interesting that once he signs that thing out, that it's the clock starts because the yeah. audience knows that's such a cliche. And I love it. So I recorded it the entire episode until the fight starts. Mm -hmm. And when the fight starts, the alarm score, right? The Pink Floyd moment. But what I did is I then took that clock out and played on top of it with things like you said, wood locks, mm -hmm. lots of percussion. I'm a percussionist primarily. Mm -hmm. So I created this very complex tapestry of the clock ticking. Sometimes the clock was in, it was constantly replaced. I only took it out when Will and Alana were meeting. Yeah. Just so you time stands still with them, you know what I mean? But for the most part, there's a pulse based on that kitchen clock, which is counting seconds, 60 seconds, has a, it feels like 120 beats a minute. And what's really interesting about that episode, if you watch it again, listen to the way people talk. Because one of the things that I've learned that I've really brought to season two of Hannibal is the, the Japanese no or kabuki music and the way that the Japanese make music, which if you talk to certain scientists, they'll tell you that the Japanese listen to and process music on the same side of their brain as speech. They're the only culture in the world that does that. Everybody else processes and listens to music on the right side of their brain that has nothing to do with speech. So when you listen to this Japanese music, it's kind of like I'm talking to you now with these spaces, these positive explanations. So I really tried to include that through this season of Hannibal because each episode was named after a Japanese food course, blah, blah, blah. But when you watch that episode, it has this plot going and 
I haven't, I've only done this with the English language, but it's incredible how on their dialogue is. Every character in the whole show is like hitting this 120 beats a minute or subdivision thereof, whether it's 60 or whatever, so rhythmically. It's really interesting. And yes, as we get after the fight, I liked the idea, I did my own variation, and you know that's just a piano. It's a piano playing the Bach aria from the Goldberg Variations. The Goldberg Variations are based on variation of the bass line, like 20-something of them, not yeah. the melody. So I did my own variation, then I time-stretched it over seven hours. And I, I swear to God, start and finish, that took me 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And it's a nine and a half minute long. I mean, the concept. Yeah. I had to build on to it, add bass, add things to it. But the, the arranging of the piece and the concept of stretching it, then that happened really quickly. So, no, I was sitting watching it with my uh, metronome app. Tapping out to figure out the, the what the tick was because it was it was really effective. Um, so there were a couple. I mean, so I have a Hannibal podcast, and one of the things I do because I'm a musician is that we spend at least five to ten minutes talking about the scoring for every episode. So oh, I really, wow. I really can. It's great. It's one. It's I love that I am able to do that to bring that the two worlds so together. Great. Um, but um, so I'm very aware of certain elements of the scoring. First of all, the Hannibal's harpsichord yeah. concerto was just messing me up because of the tritones I said that I stayed up several hours transcribing it and trying to figure it out um, and so I wanted to know if you had a, a particular approach to, th to that that you were going for because for me it felt very like viscerally upsetting because yeah. it doesn't fit with the tonality one expects from the harpsichord um, so I was wondering if you talk about that and then also um, the in the scene where Hannibal in his beautifully tailored clear kill suit um, uh, confronts Chilton it seemed like there was um, a jazzy inflection and, and tonality with the clarinet in that yes. that I didn't notice elsewhere ah. in the scoring. So I was wondering if you would talk about about the use of that. Okay, I'll do that one first. Mm. Um, Chilton's character for me was always Woodward. Mm -hmm. And it became more and more... If you go back and watch, you'll see I actually use yeah. clarinet so with much. with him a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's something about the clarinet that I that I thought was his character. And my that's all real clarinet. And my uh, I have a guy named Lars who lives in Norway who is plays all the woodwinds for me. Um, except for the fake ones that, that I do or that um, one of my musicians does. But in that instance, that was very influenced by Messiaen. Mm -hmm. And and I can't remember the piece, but there's a Messian piece that's just got this really interesting, slightly jazzy clarinet part. But then those chords come in where we just stacked. Yeah. When he walks into the kitchen and sees the what's going on. Um, but those were, I mean, those were performance pieces. Those were improv pieces that I. I think I did like seven takes and then cut them together to create the final. But Chilton was always the clarinet, and the sad thing is, once once he was seemingly dead, mm -hmm. my woodwind player is like, oh, I'm out of a job. <laughs> it's like, like if you watch the show, nobody's dead until you see the body. Yeah, on this show. I know, I know, I, and I don't know, and I don't want to know yeah. where we're coming back. But um, the harpsichord piece is by a French composer. Okay. 
that was a piece that, and I recorded it, mm -hmm. and my harpsichordist is a brilliant harpsichordist named Patricia Maybe. I did a movie called Marie Antoinette in like 2007 or something, and I had her play the pieces. That actual instrument, that harpsichord, is made by a guy named Curtis, who's a harpsichord maker in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. He brings the instrument in to my studio, it sits overnight, temporarily mm -hmm. tuned. Um, the thing about the harpsichord, you know, the harpsichord is known as the instrument of death because the notes die. Right? You pluck them once, there's no sustained pedal. It also was adorned often so that it looked like a coffin. Um, and it's, you know, whereas the instrument of life is the organ. Because the organ has got this non stop flow of air. And I liked the very first meeting I had for Hannibal, and I only had two, uh, up in Toronto. They asked me, Brian, what instrument would you? with Hannibal Lecter and I said the harpsichord and they didn't agree with me like they didn't say no but they're like really because I don't I don't think they had one and it's interesting that as we got to the second season I was able to really bring that in and I did give them a lot of the history I'm really into the history of yeah you know and like using a bull roar and then saying this is one of the oldest instruments known to me. And most of the instruments used in Hannibal, they're all real instruments. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a lot of crazy rocket science going on. I just happen to use things like bull roars and those plastic tubes and, and a lot of percussion instruments that are 100 years old or whatever. Um, but the, yeah, that piece of music, which was written by Mornay, um, what he was also kind of a really interesting character because he he wore like all black like he was the I think he's one of the first ever true goth musicians his pieces are so dark and um, yeah lots of trust <laughs> it's death I mean yeah. and but what's interesting about that piece when you watch it is that Mads Mikkelsen did a pretty good job of yeah matching of matching, and that's because I had given him something to play to. But then later in the show, you see him composing something, mm -hmm. which is something that we made in the summer. Mm -hmm. And we had no idea what the scene was. Nobody had any idea. We just knew we need him writing something. So I tried to make it quite simple, mm -hmm. because I learned in the first season that Mads can play piano, but kind of not great. He's not a great player. So it needed to be something that he could play. Yeah. And once they, we were dealing with the picture as opposed to what, it just all worked out totally differently. But it worked out very well, yeah. I think. Um, a couple more. I'm going to keep asking questions until they drag oh. you away. Um, oh, and the full version's on the soundtrack. First, oh, great. I did the full version of it. Great. Uh, that I look forward to yeah. picking that up. Yeah. Um, two things next. First of all, how does the selection of classical pieces work for in the show? Because uh, whoever chooses them has ruined Mahler's Adagietto for me. Yeah, sorry. Which is, that yeah. That was me. That was you? I do all of that. I was but performing it that day. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> no, I was, I was playing a gig that weekend. Play, I was like... I'll Imagine tell you if they used it and then they did. Well, I'll tell you something about Mahler. I love Mahler. Yeah. 
I don't have the resources to use whatever I want. Mm -hmm. I have to use music libraries. Yeah. I wanted to use Mahler. It was more about him as a composer than that actual piece of music. Okay. Because of what's going on in the scene. I felt like, and I feel like, Hannibal Lecter would like Mahler and mm -hmm. would listen to Mahler. And I was, you know, when I pick those things, I often have to do it very quickly. Okay. And I have to deal with libraries. Yeah. So sometimes people read into it a lot more than really is going on. Yeah. You have to remember, <laughs> this is a guy that is having dinner and playing music. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not scored. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's just literally background. Yeah. Other times, it is meant to score, and, to, and I play on top of it. I played on top of the Mahler piece. Mm -hmm. I played Gamelon, and maybe some, I can't remember what else. But mm -hmm. I often will integrate on top mm -hmm. of the two. And then, she's not looking, so I'm going to ask another one. Um, what about the use of various instruments? Uh, you mentioned that scene in the finale with Alana and Will. I really keyed into the cello in that scene, for example. And But then the cello was used uh, as he's eating Beverly. Yeah. And, and so I don't know if the cello is supposed to be an encouraging instrument or if you use it in different ways in different episodes, in different yeah, moments. The, the cello, my orchestra, just as a musician, I can tell you what I'm, my orchestra is. Yeah. Myself, uh -huh. um, a guy that can play anything with keys on it, um, a guy that can play anything with like guitar strings, even though kodos, banjos, ouds, mm -hmm. you name it, and my woodwind guy. Mm -hmm. Then I have my string players. Mm -hmm. I only have three of them. And there's often a hundred. I know this because I've been asked to do a concert in Poland next year mm -hmm. and to figure out how to orchestrate and pull that off is rough. Because so you guys you, are doing this all separately? like in, Layering it on layering top of each up, other. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and, and mostly all the percussion stuff goes first because mm -hmm. that's what I will perform and that gives you that feel of everything. It can give you a, a tonal center. It can give you all kinds of things that then build on top of it. But the cello is an instrument that's been since the first episode, mm -hmm. and it's just, it's just scored. I mean, it's not specific to any character. Mm -hmm. Certain instruments are specific to each character, and certainly certain themes, as the cello go with anybody. Okay. One, one of the uh, elements of the show that is, we, my, the podcast that I do, we did, covered season two week to week, and then we went back and are just, have been doing season one. One of the elements that we continually struggle with is the stack. And what that is, <laughs> we have no freaking clue what it's supposed to be. And I'm curious how that, uh, if, if, if that, if there's a particular approach you have for scoring those moments. Yes. Well, I did in the very first episode create some sounds for the stack mm -hmm. that are repeated and altered all throughout every, yeah. the whole thing. The stag for me, I was like, he was like, what is, what is this thing? You know, the, the stag was like, it's interesting because you see where it becomes in the finale where mm -hmm. it's almost as if it died. And I tell you, with this show, like, I am just like you. I don't watch it until I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. I don't read scripts unless I have to have some you know music pre-recorded I have to do whatever mm -hmm. I like staying with the audience mm -hmm. and I also like being a fan of the show because if I wasn't a fan of the show I would not do another season mm -hmm. I would just say okay 
It seems like it's a lot. It's really intense and detailed scoring. I imagine it's very time-consuming. Yeah, my day is broken into two parts. And the first part is me, and I have an engineer that comes in. So I get, it, I get in about 10. He comes in about 11. He goes home around 7. I'll go home, take my dog home, because I have a puppy. Terrible time for her to have a puppy. Take it home, sp spend some time with my daughter, my mm. wife, go back to work, and then I'll work until I can't make a decision anymore. Mm -hmm. Those hours between, say, 9 and 2 in the morning, mm -hmm. crazy shit happens. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's me and my studio by myself with all of <laughs> the stuff, a lot of which I have already recorded and I'm sort of moving things around. But And then when I leave, I'm always looking over my shoulder, someone's going to kill me. You know, mm -hmm. I really do get baggage from these shows. I mean, I, Hannibal is the first time ever where the characters from the show entered my nightmare. Mm -hmm. And this only happened a couple weeks before the end of the show. Mm -hmm. And I've worked on movies for many, many months and, and projects for a long time. I've never had the actual characters in my dreams. Mm -hmm. With Hannibal, it just happened. It only happened to me twice, but I had both Maz's character and Will's character in my nightmare. That sounds terrifying. It's so scary, you can't believe it, because my brain is thinking, this is work. This, you know what I mean? You I have see. that weird yeah. thing in your head that's kind of like it crossed the line with me. I told both Brian Fuller and David Stacey, man, I gotta, I gotta step away. Luckily, I was done. Mm -hmm. I finished that. I think the last episode was, was really brutal. What, not just what happened in terms of everybody sort of dying or you mm -hmm. not knowing that they're dying, but emotionally what Hannibal did yeah. was so heavy in the fact that Will just kind of offered himself up to him like the lamb to the slaughter. I mean, the whole thing was mm -hmm. like, it really entered my heart and my brain in a way that nothing I've ever worked on has. Mm -hmm. And it could be the fact that it's going to now continue. Mm -hmm. Everything else, like when I did Boss, I did two seasons. Mm -hmm. Didn't Done. come back. But even with this, I didn't know, we didn't know we were doing a third season. Mm -hmm. We did it. And the idea was that we didn't need to. Mm -hmm. So if it ended with that Aria piece, if that was it, it was okay. Because <laughs> yeah. we came completely full circle. Full circle to the But pilot. now, somehow, we're coming back. And I did just meet with Brian and, and, uh, and David like last week or something. But um, I don't want to know too much about it. You mm -hmm. know? And I'm really, I, I think I'm going to bring some brass in, maybe a trumpet, mm -hmm. add to my orchestra, because we're going to be in Europe. Mm -hmm. One of the elements I'm most fascinated by in the scoring and the soundtrack choices is that this is such a, such a Baroque show in the literal sense. Yeah. Everything is so heightened, and yet the music tends to be classical and romantic. Yeah. I mean, in the whole through the first season, Chopin is yeah. Alana's music. And so, and, and when the... Well, and that's the first thing you ever hear when you... Well, the first thing you ever hear is the Bach. But which you get with, with him, Hannibal. yeah. Um, That's but, right, Chopin, I use quite a bit of Chopin. Yeah, yeah. well, so you, you, so you make those selections in yeah. general. It's, it's fascinating. Sometimes the editors up in Toronto will put something in, mm -hmm. and I'll say, that's great. Yeah. Mostly they don't get it. Okay. And what I try to do, and I have a great music editor mm -hmm. who 
he'll sometimes throw in four or five things and then I'll decide which one. Mm -hmm. But what I did with him, I've done, I've been working with him for, for years now. Mm -hmm. um, and he's an older guy, did a bunch of Michael Mann movies, whatever. We did all the boss with me. Um, what we did is we basically made Hannibal Lecter's record collection. Oh, okay. So anything from that collection, he would play when he's having dinner, mm -hmm. right? Um, so yeah, for the most part, I I pick all of those. Well, because that's because then when you have episode like um, this season, I forget that the title, but the one with uh, Jeremy Davies and, and the horse, yeah. and you have those two selections from Fourier's Requiem. Yeah. There's that connection back to episode seven, the first yes. season with Mozart's Requiem, yeah. but then also the scoring seemed very influenced by that. So that's that's because you're helping to select yes. all of that. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Because I can't. And that year. does not usually happen, as Daniel just told you. Yeah. But see, I actually got in the film as a music supervisor. Okay. And the very first film I did, I was the music supervisor. So it, the movie took place in the 70s. I had to pick all these songs. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up working with the band that was scoring the movie. Mm -hmm. And then I found a way to infuse it all together. So. That's something that I do, I've done on almost all my projects, where I'm be a music supervisor, and I'll either be scoring it myself or I'm working with someone else. I, I like to connect them. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't need to be connected in any other way other than they were aware of what they are. You know, it doesn't mean if it, I'm going to use 70s music, the score is going to sound 70s, or mm -hmm. if I'm going to do Chopin, that I need to yeah. do whatever in that style. But it's just that they are connected whether you get it or not, they, they are. Um, then, because you mentioned there's certain instruments, uh, are there, because like, I noticed right away Will in the first or second episode, he's, he comes in and everybody's cheering and he's uncomfortable with that, but it's guitar, whereas later it seems, uh, and, and we get the first real strong percussion that we get more in season two with Tobias. Yes. Um, are there certain instruments that, when I'm listening to the rest of them, uh, that you key into particular uh, characters as oh, yeah. with the woodwinds, so would you oh, yeah. share with some of those higher? Well, Will, in the very first episode, there's a theme that we did, a very simple kind of whatever, social networky kind mm -hmm. of piano theme, but okay. it has noise in it. Mm -hmm. It has noise in it because he's, it's a calm thing that's happening with him and his dogs, but yet at the same time, he's got this baggage, he's got this noise. So we use that theme all throughout the show. Um, is that the, the, I call it the Will's Happy Place music when he finds Winston and then yes. later with Alana and then yes. later when he's fantasizing yes. about killing him? Yes. Super effective. Sorry, I'm geeking out a yeah. little bit here. That we wrote for the first, very first episode. Mm -hmm. um, Abigail has her themes. There's a couple. Mm -hmm. um, Instrument-wise, Hannibal Lecter being the most kind of exotic character, he, his instrument is this thing that I made out of bronze, that's a bronze tuned drum thing. There's only one of them in the world, because mm -hmm. I had it made, it weighs 30 pounds. That is used with him all over the show. There'll be other instruments as well, and yes, he plays the theremin, and yes, he plays the harpsichord, and um, so I record those things as well. Alana's instrument always was the piano. Mm -hmm. The piano has always been something to use with her. Chilton had his woodwinds, his clarinets. Gideon had, Gideon's was also, I think, percussive based. Sometimes it's, you know, there's so many, there's literally, in one episode of Hannibal, there will be 
a hundred plus instruments. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to put them into families: woodwinds, percussion, you know, keyboards, guitar, strings, whatever. Yeah. So it's hard for me to remember all of them. But I thread things like you wouldn't believe. I'm really into psychology of music. Mm -hmm. Whether you pick up on it or not, it's happening to you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your I time. I just love that you know this stuff because <laughs> it really is important to me. Oh yeah. my gosh. I have, uh, I have my master's in violin performance. You have your master's in, in violin, violin performance, and it's very rare that I'm able, I'm also a, a TV critic, and I write for the AV Club and for Sound on Sight, and it's very rare. I love the rare. AV Club. It's, isn't it great? It's pretty awesome. Well, they just, when we did the first season, I remember they just seemed to get what we were doing. Mm -hmm. And what we were doing is different for television, yeah. yet it's not. I mean, like I said, it really, was, this whole process was invented in the 40s, but, mm -hmm. but they seem to get it, and I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate your work, because I, I very rarely get to combine my two worlds. And so every time I dive in with some music in Hannibal, it rewards me further oh, and, right. and further. Um, so I guess for my, my last question, if you ever want to come on a podcast and talk, we would oh, sure. love to have yeah. you on. Yeah, um, I'd do that. Oh, that would be great. Um, but uh, I guess, because there are certain elements I was noticing, um, I really appreciate in the pilot how when Will is stepping, going backwards in his projection, the music it's is backwards. Is backwards. Yeah. It's, it's minimalist, and, but it's, and it's backwards. Are, are there certain elements, and then of course the very heightened uh, approach in season two with the percussion, are there certain musical elements or even songs or pieces that you look forward to using in the future that you haven't had the opportunity yet? I have no idea. I have no idea where it's okay. headed. You know, what's interesting with all this Japanese stuff that came out, like two years ago, I was in Shanghai, China, and I bought a bunch of cymbals and gongs and stuff. And they didn't really work for anything. Mm -hmm. So I just sat there. And then they just worked so well in Hannibal. Like, mm -hmm. I never, those tonalities are so mixed with Western tonalities. And, you know, I, I went to Japan just before I did the first pilot of Hannibal. Mm -hmm. In between Boston and Hannibal, I, I liked it in November, I like to go east. And then in the summer, I like to go to Europe, to go west. And those experiences help me figure out what to do. And I don't know what it's going to be until there. I just like to have this stuff around so if I need to play it or whatever. But as a violinist, episode 204 mm -hmm. was my favorite episode. In mm -hmm. fact, when they played the horrible-sounding one that they played today, mm -hmm. that was which just sounded like noise. <laughs> it just sounded like noise. Yeah. Such a weird mix. Yeah. But that episode, I have the characters. The woman who's making, uh, she's an acupuncturist. Yes. With the bees. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. So I had to do the sound of bees, mm -hmm. and I thought, well, this is a great idea for cliche. The bee. The, the and my yeah. my violinist, she was cracking up. And she said, you know, I was the wasp in the Hunger Games. Oh. <laughs> so she got to be the wasp violin in the Hunger Games, and then she got to be the bees in, in Hannibal. But I used real bees as well. I recorded in a jar. Mm -hmm. And so you have the, you know, the scene where she, the bees, you're oh, with God. the bees, and it goes you're inside the body. The, the pushing daisies moment. <laughs> exactly. And then it comes out, and then I actually had four different recordings of bees and all five speakers. I mean, Hannibal is something to be taken and listen to in a surround system because it is super dimensional. Mm -hmm. And I actually record it that way, deliver it to the stage, and no one ever makes me change a note of my music. None of it. It's mm -hmm. what I do 
they take it and they put it on and it's on TV. Weird. Well, it's fin. bizarre. <laughs> um, the percussion is bowed frequently too, right? I'm not making. I it bow up. everything. It, I Literally thought it was everything. Figured, when am I going to get the opportunity? To I bow again? everything. And I, I go to the violin shop. There's a string shop in Glendale. And I get all the reject bows mm -hmm. because I destroy them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would understand. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Lovely meeting you. Yeah. Enjoy the rest of your time. Back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalzik, and I'm joined once again by our 2014 San Diego Comic Con correspondent, my sister Maggie. Maggie, welcome back. Hello. So we've had a day to recover from Comic Con. We're recording on Tuesday. Uh, how was your first Comic Con experience? Um, you know, it was really cool. There's like such a unique energy about it. It feels kind of like Halloween, but for adults. And I, I don't go to any Halloween parties, so. Um, that's like people dressing up and just having so much fun and enjoying themselves and everyone has something in common to talk about pretty much. So um, it was really interesting. Now, you did not go, get the full Comic-Con pass. You were not able to get every day. Uh, so you, that actually, I, I think, ended up kind of working out because you could kind of ease your way in. Adventure time. Yes, obviously. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. Uh, yeah, so there, you were not able to see everything that you wanted to, but let's kind of go through the Comic-Con experience for this year, um, and we kick things off on Wednesday, um, Wednesday's preview night, you did not have a badge for that, but I did, but even before that, we learned a very handy tool, tool or a very handy tip, which was what? Pick up your badge early. Now, we were, you, you had Thursday and you had Sunday, and anyone who has a Thursday badge, uh, and any other badges, as long as you have Thursday, can go to um, an off-site location and take the trolley for like 20 minutes to go pick up your badges for the day, and then you don't have to do it that morning. And that was a pain in the butt on Wednesday, but it ended up being really helpful. Yeah, definitely. It was hot out, um, so you wouldn't want to do that multiple times. So that was that did help a lot. Um, then I went to preview night and saw some pilots. I saw the pilot for The Flash. I saw about half of the pilot for Constantine. The pilot for The Flash is apparently, from everyone who's seen more of the pilots than I have so far, one of the best pilots of the year. Uh, but I'm also hearing that that is not necessarily saying that much. It's not apparently a great year for pilots so far. Um, but I thought it was fun. I really liked the cast. I'm less convinced on whether the lead will be able to handle all of the emotional moments, his uh, angsty, dramatic voice, which came up a couple times, and, and also face, were, were less believable and a bit problematic, actually, for me. But he really did sell the uh, the whiz-bang of it all. and I'm it, in a glass case of emotion. It was kind of like that a couple times. I'm not... You I, me. I can't. I can't. I can't lie. Uh, but it's just sort of refreshing to have a superhero who realizes he has powers and says awesome 
which is what the Flash does. So, but on the whole, it was a lot of fun. It got it went over very well at Comic Con. The crowd loved it, as should not be surprising. Then I went and walked the floor, and we'll talk about the floor a little bit later. Um, but it got took a bunch of pictures and put them all up on Twitter, so you guys can go check those out. Uh, check out my Twitter feed if you want to see more pictures from the floor. And, and then I saw about came back to watch Constantine, but only saw about the second half of it because I did not gauge my time correctly. And I will hold off on any thoughts on Constantine until I have seen the entire pilot because it's not really fair to judge a pilot by half of its runtime. So uh, that takes us up for thir- Wednesday. Now, what did you do with your Wednesday while I was previewing? Um, yeah, I just yeah, I went back and relaxed. I watched some Hunger Games. Um, but a relaxing evening. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely relaxing. Because the next evening was uh, Thursday, the first night of Comic-Con, and... Uh, you had a badge for the day, so uh, you had a full day of, of comic conning, as as did I. So, well, what what did you see on Thursday? We started the day with going to the end of the TV Legends panel. It had I don't know I don't remember who the host was, but um, it was Betty White, William Shatner, and Donald Faison. Donald Faison. They were really interesting, and um, they also got into a debate about zoos, which was pretty fun with. Uh, uh, Betty White taking the um, pro zoo for the conservation of species, um, and the William Shatner taking the view of, um, you know, it's not their natural habitat. This, they're not going to feel be able to be uh, fulfilled and stuff. So, and they both had good points. So that was really that was really cool. I like animals, so that was interesting. Um, and they were just and every time Betty White opened her mouth, everyone was like, we just like loved her because she's just very. She just seems like such a very nice lady. Um, so that was cool to actually see her in person, and she seemed like everything, she seemed to me like everything that she seemed like on, you know, when you see her, she just seems very nice and, and warm and loving. Very accessible, and... Oh, yeah, you just want to hug her. (laughs) (laughs) But with that wit, the wit was in there, too. Oh, oh, yeah, oh, of course, of course, yes, no, 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 very, um, also very aware, and, yeah, yeah. Now, what came next? After that, I went to uh, a panel on comics and using comics for um, for teaching and education, and that was I got some cool tips from that. It was for all ages, and I'm just primary, but um, I th- it, uh, they were talking about the importance for comics to be able to teach literacy to um, to all ages, but especially to uh, children or people. Um, who are having difficulties with reading because of the correlation to picture, image, and content. Um, So you get more input, and I teach a bilingual class, so that obviously applies to that. Um, So that was really interesting, and I got some good tips and things from that that I'll I'll try to incorporate. In the meanwhile, I was uh, interviewing composers from different TV shows and, uh, and films, and those interviews will be rolled out over the next few weeks of course this week you guys have already listened to my my talk with brian reitzel but there's quite a bit more of that to come there were a few changes this year at comic-con the there were twenty thousand fewer people which made a huge huge difference it was a noticeable and important difference uh the the people did not camp as much in the rooms there was a lot more changeover uh that just made for a less aggravating con um, at least for me and as for the other people I talked to as well. 
Um, also, they changed the approach um, to Hall H, where there were wristbands that were handed out. Uh, so they had 6,500 or however many their seats are in Hall H. They had that many wristbands that they handed out over the course of the evening um, from when the last panel ended the night before to the start of the first panel the next day. So that way everybody in line and everybody who's running, working the line, as well as the people who come up later, know whether or not those people are going to be able to actually get in. So if you want to get in line after they're out of wristbands, go ahead, but you'll know at least that you are not definitely not getting in for the first panel you might get in later but there's no guarantee and that was a very significant um, change and here is uh, I, I talked to the headline manager for Hall H for a couple minutes about this and about his experience at the con this year we're here with the headline manager for Hall H uh, hello thank Hi. you for your time how's it going uh, how's the line been this year? Uh, the line's been crazy. Uh, we had its ups and downs, but um, for the most part, uh, it's been great. Same as usual. Now, I'm. this is mind-boggling to me because I'm standing here on, on Sunday. It's just it's quarter to ten, and there is no one in line. Uh, yeah, we had a lot in line for Supernatural, but um, we. I think it's because we didn't have Doctor Who here. Usually if we had Doctor Who... They're on Sundays, and we had a lot of fans for Doctor Who. They're not here this year, um, so maybe that could have been it as well. Yeah, I was I was in line for seven hours last year trying to get yeah. into Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, now, how has the wristband thing affected the line? Are, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's actually really helped my line staff and uh, everybody out here. Uh, it helps us gauge uh, how many people have entered and uh, also to give us the time of, uh, for the people behind the last of the wristbands to see if they actually have a chance to get in. So they're not standing out in line uh, for long periods of time. Some of them want to do it and take their chance, um, but it's just a good gauge and good info for um, our fans. Now for yesterday with like Hall, uh, with, with um, Game of Thrones and all of that, now did did that affect, were fewer people getting in line when they saw the wristbands were done, or did, were, was, did that not really change things? Uh, it didn't really change things. Uh, you know, fans are fans, and uh, they'll do what they want, obviously, but... Yeah, they all just stood in line even though they knew that they didn't have wristbands and uh, they knew that uh, they there could possibly be a chance of them not getting in. Okay, so the wristbands more are helpful for, for you guys than really changing the line. And, and as for the numbers of people, that probably has more to do with the programming? Well, it, it helps out everybody, line staff as well as fans, because fans engage. Hey, you know, the last of the wristbands have been sent out or given out. Do I really want to stand in line and wait till someone leaves? So it's you know it's good for everybody. I think it's a great system. Okay, well thank you so much. Any other thoughts on the con this year? Uh, I had a great con. I had a wonderful con. I think it uh, went well. Um, this is my fourth year here. Third as uh, headline manager at Hall H, and um, you know I had a I had a blast. So thank yeah, you. Thank you to yourself and all the the, the line staff has been wonderful and yeah. very helpful this year. So thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Now you didn't get to Hall H, but you did get to Ballroom Twenty, and we went there on we went there on Thursday to do to see Teen Wolf, and then and then Hannibal. Now, have you seen any Teen Wolf? Are you familiar with it? No. No. And what did you take away from the panel? Um, you know what? The cast seemed really nice and like fun, and you know they just really seemed to enjoy each other. And I, I don't know, I like magic. I, I probably, I still think I, 
if it was on TV, I wouldn't change the channel unless there was something else better than I liked. <laughs> so, so the, the the panel did maybe was make you more positive towards uh, yeah. the vibe of the show, even if maybe you're not going to seek it out. Yeah, and they didn't seem to take themselves over seriously, which you know that would turn me off. Um, so. Yeah, that's one of the fun things about Comic-Con is that you will inevitably end up in a panel you didn't plan to be in for one reason or another, and you'll learn something new, discover something different. So in this case, it was, eh, maybe that's it. Teen Wolf could be yeah, interesting. Picture all the people who like Teen Wolf are probably spitting at their, their Yeah, they're probably device. not very happy with us. Uh, <laughs> but hey, you know what? If it means that we're they more like... They seem very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, it was a very energetic crowd, oh, very involved. Yeah, yeah. And that always helps. And then up next was Hannibal. Now, how what was the Ballroom 20 experience like for you? Because you didn't get into Hall H. We didn't end up doing that. Um, but how was Ballroom 20? Because it's, you know, so many more people in that room. It was nice having the TVs. I could actually enjoy it a lot more than some of the small rooms I went into where they didn't have the projectors. Because I'm like, I can't see. I mean, I need to look at your face when you're talking. So that, in that aspect, it was more accessible than some of the smaller places. Okay, um, how about uh, just the, for me, the energy of a room like Ballroom 20 or certainly Hall H is, is very palpable just because you have 3,000, 4,000 people in the room. Uh, was that something you noticed or were you more, more focused on the content? I was really paying close attention to that content, but of course, you know, the energy was there too. When, when everyone's cheering all at once, that's pretty neat and um, giving uh, more of a give and take with the... Uh, actors and I think also when there's a lot of people who are really into a show it kind of livens them up more mm. as well so that was nice now what did you think of the Hannibal panel that was fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> strong words from correspondent Maggie uh could you be a little more specific um yeah you know Ryan Fuller he doesn't really pull any punches when people ask him things like about things to come he'll say yes or no i mean he doesn't he doesn't act very secretive about it you know he's not gonna give you the whole plot for the next season but um i thought i wasn't expecting that so that was that was interesting um i also am not familiar with the book series so we got some hints about uh, upcoming characters that are going to be introduced i'm sure they're gonna be really cool oh okay can i say where they're going next we're gonna keep this conversation spoiler free uh, it's her fault you can blame Kate for that I would have told you but I know there are some who don't want to be spoiled so we're gonna be respectful of that and say that if you want the spoilers they are out there but you're absolutely right because what I appreciate about Brian Fuller's approach is that he knows that people aren't watching to see which character shows up they're watching to see how the character shows up and what and so that that understanding of what we're watching quality television for not like oh i wonder who it'll be but oh i can't wait to see how they do it once the performance you know and the wardrobe <laughs> wardrobe's key okay uh any other thoughts on the hannibal panel let's we didn't say who was there we should say who there okay so there. on the panel we had brian fuller and steve stephen lightfoot and martha de Laurentiis, who is one of the uh, producers and then there was David Slade, who directed the pilot and directed the season one and season two finales, as well as some other episodes. And then from the cast, there was Caroline Davana, who I found out I've been saying her name wrong on the Hannibal podcast for a year and a half now, which is cheery. Way and to go. For, you know, Simon has been saying it correctly this whole time, but not correcting me. 
because he's nicer than I am, apparently. Um, but also then Aaron Abrams and Scott Thompson were there. And then there was a surprise guest appearance from uh, from Raul Esparza, who uh, was very uh, lively and entertaining addition to the panel. I wish he had sung, though. That would have been nice. Yeah, he did not sing. His throat was a little froggy, so he didn't want to sing. Um, one of my favorite things about the panel was just, of course, we got to see um, a compilation of clips from uh, this past season we got to see which was fun because we were also sitting next to a couple people who were there for the panel after it and had no experience with Hannibal at all and so watching them be exposed to the show was pretty hilarious because they couldn't believe it was on network tv um and you're not alone guys if you're out there if you're listening um anyways so seeing that footage seeing the blooper reel was was pretty fun but then seeing all the costumes from the fans was pretty great too Mm -hmm. yeah definitely any final thoughts? Um, no, it was just, it was really neat to hear their opinions on different things about the show and to give some feedback from the those cast members. And um, I would definitely go again. Yep. Was this one of the highlights of the convention for you? Yeah. And then uh, after that on Thursday, we went over to the Children's Hospital panel. I had to leave halfway through to go to the Hannibal Press Room. Um, but you saw the, the entirety of that. Uh, I am familiar with Children's Hospital, a big fan of the show. Had you ever seen any? Yeah, I'd seen some Children's Hospital. So how did you think, what did you think of the panel? Um, yeah, I thought the, the guys were really funny. I know for some reason, I mean, maybe I have to just see more of it, but the, the show style just doesn't really connect with me. I get that it's funny. I appreciate that it's funny. It's just, I don't, I don't laugh. I don't know. But um, the guys who were running it were really hilarious and they had me laughing. And that was Rob Cordry and Rob Hubel, uh, and they were, yeah, they were really fun. They're always fun on the panel. It was unfortunate that there weren't more of the cast there. Last year there was a full, and in, in, this was in a smaller room. Um, last year in, they had the Indigo Ballroom, which is the third largest room, and they had mo most of the cast. They also had an NTSF SDSUV panel, which they didn't have this year. So I was a little disappointed by the decreased uh, presence of both shows at Comic-Con, but at least the what I saw of the panel was fun. After that, I was at the Handle Press Room, and then I went over to the meetup. What did you do with the rest of your went uh, with the rest of your Thursday? Okay, so I went to it was Room Seven A B, I believe, and I wanted to go to the Adventure Time Ball, and uh, no, it was the Adventure Time Royal Ball. And right before that, you know, you have to go into it sooner so you get us that you get up space. Um, they had in. I'm not gonna. I'm not quoting, but it was like inside the mind of Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, and Freddy Krueger. Almost said Krueger, Krueger. Um, yeah. So they had the psychology of those three icons, and I don't watch horror. Um, so I'm not. I mean, I don't even know who they are, but I don't know much of their backstories. And they had two doctors there um, diagnosing them. It was, uh, first of all, the plan for that was it was terrible because there was a bunch of kids there. I'm like, really? We're going to put that before an adventure? I mean, like, why? Um, but no, so it was interesting. I thought that it could have gone much more in depth, though, because, I mean, those are all things I could have surmised about the characters myself, you know. So I think that it was, it was good, but it would have been much more interesting if they'd analyzed it deeper because um that was an opportunity where you had different doctors i think they could have gone more in depth but uh there was that and then i um snagged and moved up all the way to the second row like ninja 
Um, for the Adventure Time Royal Ball, they had um, different people there. Um, the ones that I remember, the obviously the voice uh, actors, they had the voice actress for Marceline the Vampire, who was super beautiful, guys. Like, she's really beautiful. And, um, and then they had the voice actor for Finn, who I was like, oh my god, he's so young. But, um, I was, I was like, he's like, he's like a baby. <laughs> I was surprised by how young he was. Um, but they were really cool. They had, they screened two episodes. They had, uh, the food chain, which was a really kind of like, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, I think you're, it's very creative. It's an episode that aired trippy. a few weeks back. Trippy is the word. Trip, that's not, but trippy. It was super trippy. Um, I recommend. But now I was also thinking, oh my God, you know, we, we teach about animals. I could do that in my class, you know. Um, that was a really cool episode. And then they had the, the debut of Princess Day, which actually, what day is today? It's going to be airing this week. So again, all we'll say about it is the base, barest of plot, you know, teases. Uh, you all should be, any Adventure Time fans should be very excited because who does it team up? A glob. You can't handle these lumps. No, it, um, and when it, as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, have they never done this before? It puts, um, it teams up together, Lumpy Space Princess and Marceline being bad together. And that's not, we, we saw a clip of that at the that's Adventure Time panel. Yeah, it was amaz amazing. So that's going to be a lot of fun this week. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so that was your Thursday. I went to the meetup, the podcast meetup, and had a great time talking with people and catching up with some of the friends of the show, um, actually meeting Sean in person, which you got to do later. Um, and then we all went and found a diner and had some food and coffee. Some people had some coffee. Some people had some drinks. It was a nice way to end the day. On Friday, what did you do? Oh, I went to the zoo, man. I went to the zoo. Okay, I'm going to tell you guys, too. Um, I know I'm not supposed to... We're going to keep it quick. I know I'm not supposed to talk about this because this is not an animal or zoo podcast. But I know there are probably some people out there who appreciate this. I went... I got there at 9.30. I had a delightful uh, lunch at one of the restaurants at, like, 12. And then I left at 7.10, watching the animals and walking around the whole time. And it was awesome. Um... Yeah, the San Diego Zoo, if you go, is, if you're anyone who likes animals, is a must. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And the landscaping is such with all the vegetation that it really breaks it up and you don't see all the people who are there, which is nice. Um, and just, like, go take the whole day and just, just, like, wander around. But see the pandas first because if you wait till later in the day, the line is really long. So just a, a good reminder that when you're in town for Comic-Con, don't forget that Comic-Con takes place in San Diego, which is a lovely city that has many other things to offer besides the convention. Yes, the zoo to offer. Okay, we're not talking about the other things. We're just talking about the zoo. So, for especially if you're in Maggie's situation where you don't get, you aren't able to get every day, and so you, you know, you're maybe bummed out that you can't be at Comic Con on one of the days. You could always do things like go to some of the museums, go to the zoo, go to the offsites. There's plenty of other things to do in San Diego. Um, for myself, I started the day in uh, uh, in the Indigo Ballroom. I went to the Uncle Grandpa and Clarence panels uh, in the morning, which were were pretty fun, and once again confirmed my thesis that uh, voice actors equals a good panel. 
Um, then was Adventure Time right after that, which was fantastic, a lot of fun. Um, both of these were moderated by Tom Kenny, who uh, was dubbed Sponge Cash in the first panel, because of course he's the voice of SpongeBob, as well as the Ice King on Adventure Time and many, many, many other voices. But he was uh, a hoot, an excellent moderator. Um, then after that, I stayed for Venture Brothers, which I always loved. That was just so much fun because Obviously, there hasn't been a season of Venture Brothers since the last panel, um, so they they threw together a trailer that basically said, "We promise more is coming," <laughs> and so there will be more Venture Brothers in 2015. Hopefully, some of it will air before Comic Con next year when they will undoubtedly do another panel. Um, Doc Hammer and Jackson Public were, uh, were joined by James Urbaniak, who of course doc voices Doctor Venture, and it was just a lot of fun, even though there was nothing new for us to talk about. It was basically just a personality panel, but it was it was super fun. Uh, then I had to sleep because I was nearly dead from uh, having to have some reviews up at the AV Club and also just, you know, all of, you know, when I tried to do Comic-Con in the past, I never tried to be social. I never stayed out past 10 o'clock. And this year I was like, I can do it. And I couldn't. <laughs> so I had to go back and, on Friday and sleep. And I came back um, to the con later on and ended up going to the Sleepy Hollow panel. Uh, I, and I, I went to Falling Skies before and then stayed and, and saw Sleepy Hollow. Uh, the Falling Skies panel, again, I'm very unfamiliar with the show. I don't know very much about it. Um, so I was. it was more of an observation uh, situation than uh, engagement with the panel, but it was interesting to see how that show has progressed and to watch the, the fans enjoy uh, the show going into its final season. And then if, as for Sleepy Hollow, Sleepy Hollow, I felt really bad for the cast because they had most of the cast up there, I think all of the main cast, um, but it just was very poorly managed, like you were saying earlier, Maggie, because it, they, the people who were putting together the schedule put Sleepy Hollow, Orphan Black, and Arrow all at the same time. And so Sleepy Hollow, one would think would have a larger fan base because it's a network show, but there were hundreds of open seats, at least a hundred, closer to 200 probably, open seats at the start of that panel, whereas people were still waiting in line to get into Orphan Black. Orphan Black was in too small of a room. They should have switched the rooms and given uh, Sleepy Hollow the smaller room and Orphan Black the bigger room. And the reason is that Sleepy Hollow, with the first season that it had being so beloved by fans and really embraced, uh, by a lot of critics as well. Uh, should It does have a very passionate fan base, but the trouble is that passionate fan base is also a passionate fan base for Orphan Black and Arrow. And so the if the panel had been at a different time or in a smaller room, the energy would have been far more intense and would have been a lot more fun. But because you know there was there were at least 100, if not 200 open chairs in the back, you didn't get that uh, that full screaming capacity uh, like like a show like Sleepy Hollow one would imagine would have in its first full year at Comic-Con. So that was very, uh, very much a disappointment. I enjoyed what a lot of the panel had to say um, about about their characters, about the show, the, the having the showrunners and, and uh, other uh, behind the scenes uh, talent there as well was was nice. And it was on the whole well moderated, but my big just biggest takeaway was that it just demonstrated once again that the people uh who do do the tv scheduling at comic-con do not understand what some of the big comic-con type shows are orphan black should have been in ballroom 20 
easily. Um, but that's we'll see if they figure that out for next year at Comic-Con. That wrapped up my Friday. And then again, I went back and slept because I need that. I need the sleeping. Uh, Saturday, what did you do? I relaxed and slept. Kind of recovered a little bit? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Important to have a recovery day. If you, I mean, again, if you can't be in the convention center, anyways, there's other stuff you can do. There are, um, there was like an obstacle course that you could do in, for Assassin's Creed, and if you completed it, they gave you a T-shirt. I was thinking about that. Uh, that was the one where I was like, oh, yeah, but cool. but fun that they provide that option. Yeah, yeah, definitely cool. They had the shaving. Yeah, they had. Uh, you could, you could get a shave next to a giant guillotine, which is fun. There, there was the uh, uh, fun house and meet wad experience for Adult Swim. There were some panels and some other game show kind of elements over at Petco Park as well. So there was a lot of other stuff you could do if you didn't want to take the day easy like you did, uh, Meg. Again, I I spent Saturday. Uh, I slept in a little bit, which was good because I needed it, and then I walked the floor. Because I love my sister. She does love her sister. And I hate the floor, but apparently I love my sister more. We'll, again, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I went to Cartoon Voices, which was pretty fun. Um, then I went and got some uh, got some lunch, which was uh, certainly a necessity. Um, and then I came back for a couple panels at the end of the day. And I was actually, I have to thank Todd Vanderwerf, uh, our buddy over at Vox, who got me to go to a panel about, uh, it was called Rulers of the Realm, which featured f- uh, fantasy authors. And it was one of the highlights of my con. It was really cool to watch them uh, dive into their process and talk about uh, some of the uh, elements that they run into in their writing, uh, some of their strategies, but also some of their favorite and least favorite elements of their genre. It was a really great panel, actually, and it just goes to further highlight that you never know what the most interesting panel is going to be, because uh, it could easily be something you didn't expect. So I did not expect that one and walked away with a list of books that I have, will have to stack next to my uh, on my nightstand next to my bed so that I can make sure that I'm able to attend that panel next year, because it was a really, it was very much a lot of fun. Um, then I rounded out the day with Person of Interest, and uh, I, I saw, again, the second half of the Constantine pilot beforehand, and then I watched the Person of Interest panel. Uh, I really liked what they had to say quite a bit at uh, the Person of Interest panel. Uh, Todd is a big fan of that show, and I know DePayan and some of uh, the other my other friends at Sound on Sight are as well, so they've sort of won me over a bit, so I will be checking that out at some point here in the not-too-distant future. And uh, But again, very thoughtful. Michael Emerson, as will surprise no one, was fantastic on the panel. Uh, and some of the other panelists were also a lot of fun. Um, then I went to try to go to American Horror Story, but could not get in. <laughs> and I closed out the day with the Warner Brothers TV uh, presentation, which uh, was in Hall H. And I was able to just walk right in, which was cool. Um, always fun to be in Hall H. And the there was a little bit... You know, I probably waited in line for about 15 minutes, but I got in just in time for them to start. And uh, it's just there's nothing like being surrounded by 6,499 other people who are all there to see the same thing. They screened the Flash pilot, which I had already seen, so I went and uh, got some food during that, came back and watched the Gotham pilot. Gotham pilot uh, is a a good pilot. It does, you know, it does a lot of the piloty things pretty well, and... Uh, if I didn't have a pre-established relationship with the material, I would be a lot more positive on it than I am. I'm a little, 
nervous because it points towards um, certain precious elements that I'm not very interested in. Everybody that you meet, every person they happen to like bump into is somebody who will become a significant figure in the DC universe and that got tiresome for me whereas for everybody around me they were very excited. <laughs> there was lots of cheering. Um, but you know when you have Ben McKenzie and you have Donald Logue as your two leads you know they're gonna ground the material and they're both fantastic actors. Um, I've been waiting for Donald Logue to have a show hit in quite a while so I'm really hoping that this will do do as well as it uh, seemed like it did at Comic-Con. So whether or not that translates to a wider audience, who knows, but the Comic-Con crowd loved it, and uh, and I think it could be a good show. So I'm vaguely optimistic about Gotham after, after that experience. Then, I, again, I went back and went to sleep because I had learned my lesson and stopped trying to be social after a long day of Comic-Con. That takes us to Sunday. So, Maglar, so Maggie, uh, what was your Sunday uh, at Comic-Con? Oh, excuse me. We went to Sesame Street to begin with, and um, that was really, I'd say, really special. You know, going to that, um, there was, you know, seats available, so there was a lot of people, but, you know, it wasn't cramped. They had a couple Muppets who were starting to, like, improv and do some funny stuff um, before the show started. They were just, they were guests. Yeah, those were fans. Uh, who, they weren't actually Muppets because they oh, weren't sorry, part of the Muppets. They were puppets. They were puppets. But they uh, they they did warm up the crowd and led led us in a sing along of the theme song for Sesame Street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, that was nice. Oh, we also got our picture. Did you tweet that? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah, we got our picture taken with um, two other um, fans who were there who had uh, their own Grover and oh, Fonzo. Oh, excuse me, starts with a G. Gonzo and Fozzie Bear puppets, and they looked really realistic. They looked legit. So that was that was super cool. And um, the and on the panel, they who was on the panel? Grover, and Murray, and uh, Cookie Monster, and then the executive producer. Executive producer, what was her uh, name? Sesame Street. I, you know, I do. I don't remember off the top of my head. Okay. Um. So yeah. No. So it was just you know they oh. had two. And it was moderated by Chris Hardwick. Oh yeah, it was moderated by Chris Hardwick. Yeah, they had um. You know, they had two episodes that were aired. The first one was Numericon, and it was a spoof off of Comic Con. It was really funny. And then they also had this a spoof of Star Wars for the Cookie Monster afterwards. I forget the name. Yeah, that was uh, themed about uh, self control. Yes, and yes. that was that was also, they were both really fun. Mm-hmm. There was a good audience Q&A, a lot of thoughtful questions, a lot of adorable questions. Oh my god, okay, this little girl goes up there, they're like, what's your name? She's like, Cordelia, and so it's just so cute. And then um, then she says, you know, where's Elmo? <laughs> and then they were like in some funny responses, you know, he's busy, blah. And then she says, wait, wait for it, can you tell him I love him? Oh god, it was so cute. It was super cute, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone was like, "Ah, oh no!" And then, and then, response. The actor who does Grover, Ian Grover, was like, you know, the puppet was there, and then he says, in voice and in character, he says, "Well, I know what Elmo would say. You know that Elmo loves you very much." And that's when everyone just like they're like lost it, anarchy, like we can't handle the adorableness. Oh my god! Yeah, it was so cute. It was so adorable. Um, and they had. I thought it was also cool that they had some people coming up. Who had seen Sesame Street 
you know, for generations in their family. Like this one lady went up and she had seen as a child and with her children and then with um, now with her grandchildren. So having that kind of following audience um, was special having that there. Yeah, it was a really great panel. It was a lot of fun. After that, we went and tried out uh, a panel about prompt being able to get kids to read using uh, comic books, but that one ended up being a bit generic, and uh, there wasn't as much specific uh, recommendations or knowledge, maybe. Or if I'm sure they were knowledgeable, just the it didn't come through very well in the panel, so we ended up heading out to go get some uh, lunch with our buddies from Battleship Pretension and Criterion Cast, which was was really great. And then we came back, uh, you walked the floor a bit more, and uh, we went to Starship Smackdown. So we'll close off with the floor, but for Starship Smackdown, do you want to give uh, listeners an idea of that? Oh, so yeah, so they have, they start off with 16 ships. 16 okay. And then they, they, then they, you know, they have a panel, and they pair them down to eight. Um, and then after that, they, is it eight when they have the captains? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so then they pick, they randomly pick captains that could be any kind of captain. Like they had Captain Morgan was one. Um, and the previous year was Captain Crunch, you know. So, um, oh, it has to be a real ship and a real captain. So no cartoons and no implied prequels or anything like that. Yeah, no Star Wars prequels because the, they don't they don't exist. So oh they, really? Yes. Oh, that's funny. Oh, I thought they just meant no 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 just the Star Wars prequels. Just the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> yeah. Then that's when you pair up captains and they have a panel. Everyone gives their arguments and they vote. And then after that, um, we got down to our top four. Do you remember what the top four were? I remember most of them. Um, we had the. I want to say the NIOX or something like that. I'm sure I have that wrong. Uh, Captain, I believe that was Captain by Captain Steubing, Steuben. I could be wrong about that. From the Love oh. Boat. Then we had um, the Spaceship of the Imagination from Carl Sagan's Cosmos as Captain by the Skipper from uh, Gilligan's Island. Mm-hmm. Then we had the... Um, the Defiant. The Defiant, but one of the... Specific yeah, it was a specific Defiant... Um, not the DS9 Defiant, but its predecessor, um, which I believe ended up on Enterprise, because there was a lot of talk of Mirror Universe Hoshi in that discussion. Yeah. But that Defiant, uh, as captained by Captain James Tiberius Kirk, and then the Millennium Falcon, as captained by the Dread Pirate Roberts. So it was it was a uh, it was a throwdown there at the end. Oh, who won? Well, then they opened up the floor to, to audience comments, so, which prompted questions like, well, does, the, uh, th- does that mean that the Dread Pirate Roberts has both Andre the Giant and Chewie working with him? And everyone's like, oh, no. It was, yeah, so those are the kinds of questions. And so what it came down to after listener feedback, they go down the panel, everybody makes their pick, and three to two to two. Oh, Captain Stevens did, did not get any... No, no, no votes for him. No. no love for the love boat. But uh, in a three to two to two victory, it was what we feel was the correct choice. What the audience wanted. What the audience too. wanted as well, and that is the Millennium Falcon uh, as captained by the Dread Pirate Roberts. Um, in an upset, everyone was expecting as soon as his name was called, everybody was expecting Kirk to take it away because he usually does win the space, Starship SmackDown if he is in play. Um, but yeah, so that was that was a lot of fun. I always enjoy it. Uh, did you enjoy it, or was it just the force of me enjoying it so much? No, oh, no, I enjoyed it. Um, no, definitely was good times. I I think, and I enjoyed it more when I knew what they were talking about. I knew which ships were 
and play but no it was um it was really fun and there was a lot of uh, energy and feedback coming from the audience and they also seemed they seemed like really relaxed like you know this is the end of the day you know so the end of a long con yeah. uh, somebody had walked up to one of the panelists ahead of time and given him a bottle of Johnny Walker <laughs> so uh, yeah that was the recurring gag they were throwing out cookies to the audience and it, Hooten and Hollerin is uh, encouraged uh, and so we got a little bit of our woo girl on, which was fun, a fun way to end end the con. Uh, but let's go quickly to the floor. Uh, what was your experience like? I, I took off the backpack, oh and that really helped me to mm -hmm. not hate the floor with a fiery passion. Mm -hmm. um, instead, I just was sort of, I had some positive floor experiences, and then not really that many negative ones, which was a nice change. How about you? It was like the first time I went on Thursday, it was like nothing. Then on Sunday, it was like more crowded and stuff. I'm like, okay. No, but um, they had uh, they had some really cool books and comics. Um, uh, this is the, the biggest thing. I met the, um, and like some people will be like, whoa, and most people will be like, I don't care. But um, if anyone knows The Last Unicorn, it was a movie in the 80s. 80s. The 80s it actually has some like really famous voice like the actors in there. Um, it was an animation. Um, so I went over and we actually met the screenwriter for the movie. He has done uh, a Peter Beagle. He's done a graphic novel. So I was like, oh my god, you know, just because that was something I watched a lot when I was a kid. You know, it's kind of a piece of little little, little slice of my my childhood. And um and I got one of the graphic novels, which is a really nice hardcover, and he signed it, so that was really cool. And um they had all their really interesting artwork and um books and novels that were out with the authors. And uh, I also got this super sweet graphic novel of The Wizard of Oz that's based off the original text. Um and the author signed it, and he drew on spot drew like a scarecrow, the scarecrow. Like, which was really cool. I wasn't expecting that. So, um, yeah, so a lot of really cool art, especially for me, because if I can just get it online, I'm like, I just order off on Amazon. But a lot of uh, really cool art in um, books. There, it was uh, neat to see some of the costumes that I, I saw pretty much just on the floor. There were a few people who were walking around uh, that I was able to uh, get their picture and and um, share that on Twitter. Again, just check out my Twitter feed for if you guys want to see the costumes. Um, there was uh, you know some some fun things that I heard about other people finding. I know the the Hannibal Funko dolls were a big hit with with people. Um, I just I don't I'm not interested in buying anything. Uh, from the floor, maybe a little bit of art, but that's about it. So the floor is not as interesting to me in general. But uh, Maggie sent me on the Adventure Time Conquest, oh, where, yes. where they send you to all the different booths, and when you complete, when you find all of the scavenger hunt booths, um, then they sent they sent you over to their offsite, um, and you could pick up a medallion and get your picture taken in lumpy space. So of course, I got my LSP on, purple wig, purple boa struck a pose and and had my picture taken in lumpy space which was pretty fun um but uh that was the extent of my floor experience this year uh are you gonna go again oh yeah definitely what's your overall takeaway of comic-con did it live up to you i mean because you've been wanting to go for a while did it live up to your expectations yeah yeah i think you just really need to have uh good footwear in the first place as gay i don't know how people do with like their heels and like stuff I'm like i don't know but you need to have really good footwear and socks um and then i think also 
you need to have a clear idea of what you want to go to and what times they're at beforehand because if like if you're looking at your schedule and you're like oh that looks really cool i think i'll just stop over there like five minutes before because you didn't know what's happening and you can't get in it's frustrating but um if you know specifically what you want to go to beforehand so that you can make sure you do get into that and you have comfortable clothes and footwear i think it's really fun yeah, bring some snacks too. Snacks yes. are key. Snackers, you need those. Um, yeah. So d- again, the advice that, that I always give after having done this a couple years is pick a thing each day that you care the most about and structure your day around making sure that happens. And that way, you won't be uh, overly disappointed or get your expectations too high. If you try to do everything, it's not going to work. So just kind of pick a handful of things and try to, you know. As we learned with Sesame Street this year, try to try to be flexible. There was a song about being flexible uh, at the Sesame Street panel that was good. So um, it was a lot of fun. I was very glad to get to share it with you this year, Maggie. Aww, aren't we just sickeningly sweet? Okay, um, now are you're so are you going to go next year? Yeah. Well, we'll have to pre-register now. Yeah, we'll have to see what we can do. Hopefully, we'll be uh, fast forward a year and we'll be talking about uh, Comic Con 2015. Um, so it was a lot of fun, and hopefully, you guys, if you if you went to Comic Con, drop a line and let us know what what your favorite panels or experiences were this year. But uh, it was it was a successful 2014 for us. So again, as ever, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Maggie, for coming on. You're welcome. And we will be back next week with another episode of the Televerse. Bye.